The following podcast is a production of Commercial Investment Real Estate Magazine, the official publication of CCIM Institute. For more on the latest trends, best practices, and continuing education in all areas of the industry, visit our website at ccim.com and sign up for our education e-newsletter. Welcome to another episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast. I'm Nicholas Leiter, Senior Content Editor of the magazine. In this episode, Larry Guthrie, CCM Institute Director of Communications, is joined by Casey Conway, CCM Institute Chief Economist and Principal at Red Shoe Economics, to discuss logistics, last mile delivery, and infrastructure. Armed with new infrastructure research from the American Society of Civil Engineers, Conway dives into the challenges and opportunities, the impact across property types, and the data and considerations needed for commercial real estate professionals to succeed in this environment. Hi, I'm Larry Guthrie, Director of Communications for CCIM Institute, and I'm here with Casey Conway, CCIM Institute's Chief Economist and Principal at Red Shoe Economics. Thanks for joining me today, Casey. Great to be here. Thanks, Larry. So we all know industrial is the darling of commercial real estate right now, but you really can't talk about that with really talking about last mile logistics, supply chain, and infrastructure. You know, all areas that you're quite the expert on. In fact, you recently developed a course for CCIM Institute titled Last Mile Logistics, the Final and Most Expensive Link in the Supply Chain, and that debuted in January. And then we have the American Society of Civil Engineers, who just published their uh, quadrennial infrastructure report card, whopping 172-page research tome. Um, so it just seemed like the perfect time to have you on the podcast to tackle this topic, distill the information, kind of connect all the dots for us. So I'm really excited to have you here and talk a little bit about this. So let's start with a little stroll down memory lane. E-commerce was on an upward trajectory even before the pandemic supercharged it. Uh, and it's reported that last mile delivery is a huge link in the supply chain, accounting to, for 40 to 60% of logistics costs, which is pretty substantial. Why is last mile such a significant consideration? Yeah, you'd think something like the last segment would be the easiest one to solve. But if you kind of reflect on it a minute, it's kind of like, a, you know, the spokes on a wheel. The, the hub is really easy. Think of the factory or the port, but then extending out to all aspects of the wheel, it's different touch points. So there's many, many more touch points. If it's, a, if it's an urban city, there may be fewer stops, but a lot more packages to get into the vertical stop if it's an office building or a high-rise apartment or condo. If it's the suburbs, uh, there's a lot more stops Um and so think about your poor UPS or FedEx guy that, you know, is coming through your neighborhood and he's got to stop nine times for the nine houses on the street. It just takes more time and, and more um, logistics to get it. And oftentimes they may be getting multiple packages during the day that are going to the same addresses. So do you hold them and deliver them in, in, in groups or how do you do it? So it's just a, a real challenging and it's not just the challenge of getting you the packages that we we know that uh, about a third to a half of you out there are like my millennial daughters. They order three to four of everything and only keep one and send the, best, the rest back. So how do you also process the return part of that last mile? Uh, last mile logistics. Interesting, too, because you make a distinction between B2B and B2C last mile as well. So what are the challenges that are unique to each category? 
Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that point up because we think it's something that's unique in that course offering. Um, and what I heard in talking with a number of my retail uh, clients was they're beginning to rethink this, that there isn't one last mile logistics model. So if you think about the business to business, think about, say, a Procter and Gamble that's trying to supply the grocery store to business entities and how that logistics work. It's, it's bigger volume. It's not small packages. So it's got to go through bigger channel points it's more critical that it be on time and in full because if you don't get toilet paper to the grocery store in the time that people need toilet paper, you have a big problem at the grocery store. So the business to business is much more uh, sensitive in time. It's dealing with bigger volumes uh, than it little small packages. And that business uh, client does not have the luxury of things being delayed. It really is very time sensitive. Think if you're a, a, a components manufacturer in Mexico delivering components to an auto factory in the United States, that assembly line could be tied up. So it's much more time sensitive, much more critical, and it's bigger uh, packages or, or quantities of stuff. The consumer, though, uh, it's less critical. The consumer, we know we're getting everything shipping for free. At least we think we are. It's in the price somewhere. <laughs> but um, we're much more forgiving that if the thing we ordered and we thought it was going to be at our house by two o'clock or five o'clock and it doesn't get there till nine o'clock at night or maybe the next morning, we're a lot more forgiving uh, of that. It's also dealing with many more smaller packages. So it's more complex because you're dealing with more touch points. Um, but the consumer is a little more forgiving if you're delayed, where the business to business is fewer touch points or stops, but much more important to be on time. So very different models in terms of what's the emphasis in the business to business. Uh, it's time and volume in the consumer um, it's just, you know, getting that there within a reasonable time and it's got a lot more touch points or stop points along the way. Yeah. And, and Walmart, uh, announced a move. Did they not to, uh, it was a B to BC like approach, right? So Walmart has been waking up to the fact it needs to compete directly with Amazon. So when Amazon bought Whole Foods, that was a shot across the bow to Walmart about its grocery store business. And then uh, Walmart realized with the ramp up in e-commerce, if it was going to be successful against Amazon, it too had to deliver on the promise of delivering ordered online goods on, on time, or at least in a reasonable time and in full. So they introduced this OTIF concept three years ago, on time and in full. And it wasn't too hard of a hurdle to hit three years ago. The, the suppliers and shippers only had to be on time and have the packages full uh, with what was ordered 78% of the time. But that changed in the fall of last year in the middle of COVID, where it went up to a 98% hurdle rate. And if they miss it, then they pay a penalty of 3% of the value of the goods they're handling. And why did Walmart do this? Walmart introduced its Walmart Plus program to compete with Amazon Prime. And so it had to step up to the plate. And that meant this OTIF thing had to become a lot more um, important. You really saw it's interesting with that very aggressive on time and in full, especially when you see just in last year how the logistics industry was a bit overwhelmed. You know, they, they couldn't keep up with demand. So it's very interesting that we're having this conversation. I mean, for instance, during the holiday season, you know, days when FedEx and UPS and the post office, I mean, they had more packages than they could deliver. So how can commercial real estate professionals, like 
where is where's the opportunity there? How can they identify those opportunities to help kind of solve this problem, whether it be the B2B or B2C last mile logistics solution? Okay, so you can have an easy question when we get down here later, right? <laughs> really good, tough question. Really good, tough question to deal with here. So let's put in perspective these numbers. Sometimes numbers help put in perspective how you solve the problem. So in the holiday season of 2019, um, the collective FedEx, UPS, uh, Postal Service had a capacity and infrastructure to process about 60 million packages over the holidays. But we had almost 70 million packages needing to be delivered. And if you can remember back way, way, way long ago before COVID is in holidays 2019, how upset we were about how many packages didn't get delivered over the 2019 holidays. So the collective FedEx, UPS, supply chain, postal service went back to work and they increased that those capacity portals to believe it or not, 80 million packages for 2020. So that's a one-third increase in handling e-commerce before they knew there was going to be a pandemic. (laughs) So just preparing for the evolution that was happening in e-commerce, switching from a shop in a take-home economy to an order online and deliver to me, uh, they increased that by a third from 60 to 80 million. But guess what? The, the demand or the packages going through the systems this past Christmas and holiday season was almost 90 million. It was 87 million packages. So even though they increased capacity by a third, they still couldn't handle 10% of the volume that, um, that flowed through. So we have to keep asking why if we're able to increase the capacity that much. Uh, what's the problem? Where are the choke points? Where can CRE professionals find out how to help in the opportunity? So whether you, whichever tool you use, the answer is in understanding where these volumes of packages are going. So if you look at the consumer and you look at their zip code data and look at where the, where the bulk of the packages are going in your community, in your MSA or your state, you can begin to see where the choke points are. So for example, with CCIM Institute, we are fortunate we have access to the site to do business data. And this enables you to do things like gap analysis. We, we cover this in our, our, our new ward course on last mile logistics. And you can begin to look at uh, the demographic, the gap analysis, where the packages are going, where the demand is greatest, where the choke point's going to be. And so for, for CRE professionals, you can begin to look at it and say, you know, if I have 100,000 packages on the holiday weekend going to XYZ zip code, then clearly I need an ability to get those packages through that zip code. So is that where I locate a big warehouse, or is that where I locate what we now call a retail to industrial type of conversion, something that's smaller, kind of think like your utility transmission lines. Where do the utilities put the big transmission lines? And then where do they locate the sub lines and the sub power centers? And how do you downscale it to the individual house? We have that same challenge and problem. And it's really looking at where is the consumer? Where are they ordering from? And where do they want the packages to go to? And so COVID's complicated that because many of us before maybe ordered from the office to come to our home, but now we're not so much at the office. So we're ordering more from home to come to the home, or in some cases, um, we're, we're having those packages because we're out getting out and about again. We're having to maybe go to a Dollar General or a drugstore. So we're finding new partnerships that are developing. So I think CRE professionals need to pay close attention 
to the partnerships and alliances that are developing between retailers like drugstores or or Dollar General and say a FedEx uh, in the in the package deliverer. So um, it's a tough problem, but I think it always starts with understanding where that organic consumer demand is, because that's where the package is going to end up. Of course, you know, the elephant in the room infrastructure, if we had, you know, the necessary infrastructure improvements across the country, that would certainly help things along, I'm sure, as well, which kind of brings us right to um, ASCE's infrastructure report card. So, you know, Casey, I know you're quite a fan of this report in particular, and we're really looking forward to the release. So what is it about this research that really gets you so excited? I know I really got to get a life, don't I, or a hobby, <laughs> you know, take up golf or tennis or something like that. Um, you know, anything, uh, you know, to, to get me out of the, uh, my head buried in the logistics books. So it's kind of like some people get really excited about the census every 10 years, the decennial census and, you know, a whole set of fresh new data to, you know, change the dynamic and understanding of how markets work. I'm kind of one of those, um, freaks of nature. So this is such a neat report because it's only issued every four years. So unlike the monthly jobs report or, you know, the revisions to GDP or government data, we don't get a frequent look at what's really happening in our infrastructure. And this infrastructure really defines not only the um, how our economy is functioning, but the why and where it may not function so well. So it's a really comprehensive look at not just roads and bridges, but believe it or not, 17 different categories they look at schools and electricity and stormwater. And uh, so it's more than ports and bridges and whatnot. It's even looking at things like levees um, and that type of stuff. So uh, this really is what I think is what is redefining really even the intersection between logistics and infrastructure. And if you don't have good infrastructure, there's not going to be a good intersection with logistics. It's such a comprehensive research uh project around infrastructure, uh, the infrastructure systems. And to cut to the chase, the overall grade that uh, ASCE gave the infrastructure in the U.S. was a C-. Um, and you mentioned that they did actually, stormwater was included, and that's new to this report from what I understand. Uh, so just in general, can you share some of the high-level findings of the report, and how significant is it that they included stormwater in this one? Yeah, when I when I was reading the report card, it, it, it took me back to elementary school days, you know, and I'm like, you know, mom and dad are hoping I'm going to bring home A's and B's. But, oh, my gosh, there's a lot of C's and D's on this report card. <laughs> and so as I'm reading it, I'm going, man, I, I sure don't want to know who the parents are of infrastructure in America because they're not going to like this report card. But there was a little bit of good news in it. Our overall grade uh, for most of the past 20 years, and this report's only released every four years, was in the D category. So pretty failing grades. Uh, and this is the first time in 20 years it moved into the C category. So it was a C minus. So that's something to be celebrated. But when you look at how that movement went from a, a D plus to a C minus, it really was only a couple of categories that um, helped that. And it was primarily ports and rail. And 11 of the 17 categories had no change. They stayed a D and stormwater was a new one that they added. And it's pretty significant when they add a category because it's telling us there's something pretty important about this infrastructure category. But stormwater got its debut with a D grade. So not a great start (laughs) um, for its introduction and debut. But why did they add something like stormwater when we had roads and bridges and 
all of these other, um, you know, categories, dams and levees and schools and electricity. So here's the answer. What, what did we have happen last year um, that kind of put the icing on this, on the category, put this in there? We had 30 named uh, hurricane storms uh, that hit and primarily through the Gulf region. And we know we've had an uptick, uptick frequency in that. And so whether you buy in or not to, you know, the, the climate change argument, what they're recognizing is that we're having more weather events and more intense weather events, whether it's just natural or climate change or whatever your your theory is, but we're having more of them. And so we're going to have to deal with um, more of the infrastructure that deals with these in inland water flows. Where do they go? How do we process them? What if they overflow the, the sewer plant down the river and put raw sewage into the, into the system? So we really got to be better managing our storm water. And uh, we haven't been doing that. So it's a, an introduction of an important item that really stems from, I think, the increased nature of more storms, more intense storms, and, uh, and how do we deal with that starting at the property level and going through our neighborhoods and then working our way out to our, our waterways and our, and our ocean ways. So pretty big ad. Um, that was a very significant. They don't generally add categories. So that was a, a big introduction here. And, and pretty critical, too, I would think, it's for uh, commercial real estate practitioners to be able to be aware of that information, especially in those areas that are heavily affected, too, as far as, you know, it's going to make all the difference in, in site selection and what have you. Yeah, it really does. And, you know, for, for CRE professionals to think about the impact, think about property and casualty insurance. So we've been seeing that rise pretty dramatically. And the last time we saw the kind of increases that are coming was really back 2004 to 2007 when we had all of those hurricanes in Florida uh, that made property and casualty rates go through the roof, that made it difficult for people to refinance their homes or get subprime mortgages. And so the, this stormwater thing ties back to a recognition for CRE professionals. We better pay attention to this because it affects something at the property level. It's called property and casualty insurance. And that typically is second only to um, property taxes as an expense item. So that's where it comes home to us in the neighborhood and the property level. Good point. You know, certainly we don't have time to cover all 17 categories as much as I would like to, <laughs> but can you pick out what is your top three takeaways for commercial real estate professionals on how they can put this data to use? Like what's the practical application, especially as it relates, since we were talking about last mile and supply chain, especially as it relates to those two? Yeah, so... Um... Uh, I mean, we're not going to talk about all 17. Come on, Larry, we can, we can speak out it. We can grab another 17 minutes here. So I'll give you a few <laughs> of the high level takeaways. So let's look at what's good. Let's look at the glass half full. And like I said, ports and rail, but look at maybe consider why ports and rail are working. So they have more private capital. You look at the port authorities, you look at the railroads, we only have seven of them and they're, they're privately owned. And so um, they've been benefiting from the growth in e-commerce. More containers coming in and out of the ports means more profitability and revenues for the ports. More containers having to move from the port to inland areas on rail, that's made the railroads more profitable. It's given them the capital expenditures or the capital to invest in expenditures. So our ports have been upgrading. Remember that little thing called the Panama Canal expansion? <laughs> and we were able to put bigger bo boats through the Panama Canal, but that meant that ports had to dredge deeper and expand their terminals and add new gantry cranes to unlift the you know, the containers that are stacked higher and wider on the boats. So that's been going on 
for, believe it or not, almost a decade from when that started. So the ports have been investing, seeing more volume coming. They, they saw a bigger fire hydrant being put at the ports, and they were going to have to figure out how to put more uh, more hose infrastructure to handle that higher volume. Rail has been doing the same thing. They're becoming much more efficient. Um, they've really adopted a lot of technology. And a lot of it moves on the rail is not so much manual uh, shifting and switching. A lot of that is very um, uh, handled by a lot of technology and software and the intermodal rail yards. And we've added a new thing called an inland port. So the good news was ports and rail. They're more private in their orientation. They've had more revenue coming in from e-commerce. So they've been able to invest in the capital. So let's look at who hasn't been. So you look at the categories like our roads and our bridges. Um, you know, they've, they've not had the capital. And think of a couple of reasons why. So we've had cheaper energy costs. We've had a conversion to more electric vehicles. So we're paying less in gas taxes to maintain our roads and bridges. So from a state and local government level, the revenue source that we relied upon for those infrastructure elements has actually gone down despite more utilization because the way we collected the revenues was from gas and now we're not using as much. We have more efficient cars, we have more electrical vehicles. So ports and rail had more revenue and could spend more on upgrading their infrastructure. Roads and bridges had less, even though they had more utilization. So they get more wear and tear and less revenue collection. So what that means is things like how we collect sales taxes, how we fund infrastructure, how we deal with property taxes is probably all up for renewal here in the next five years, the next four year period, um, everything down even to our schools. And so one of the things in this report, it talks about the spending gap that's growing in many of these categories. And some of these things are half trillion to a trillion dollars in spending gaps. So when you start adding up five, six, seven, eight categories that each need a half trillion to a trillion, um, boy, we, we got to hope the Federal Reserve is saving some uh, capacity on its balance sheet to fund some of this stuff, or there really is an infrastructure bill to, to, to come uh, down the load. There's another one that's very important to us that we need to focus on, aviation. Aviation got a D minus grade. Think about pre-COVID. We had choke points, we had delays, we had more planes and landings and takeoffs, and we had capacity. Uh, the airports really were uh, facing a capacity challenge. Then COVID comes and it wipes out all that capacity. We went from two and a half million passengers a day to 85,000 in April last year. We're only back at 40% capacity. So the revenue from aviation, which is passenger tickets and taxes and landing fees, uh, that's all evaporated. So how do we rebuild the aviation model? And what is the aviation model that comes back? Um, we're seeing airlines consolidate routes. We're seeing um, them deal with things in a lot different ways. So from a leisure standpoint, we may travel different. We may do more driving uh, to destinations. And the business traveler, we may not be doing as much um, business travel coming out of it. So aviation is a really important one, I think, to take a look at. Another one is energy. So we just kind of had a little bit of a of a hiccup on energy with the winter storms that affected Texas. And we learned a little bit more about our energy grid and who's on it from a federal level and who's not. And, you know, how maybe in good times, it's great to have a free market system on electricity, but then in, in bad times or storms, it's not, not so great. So uh, energy, um, which got a D, uh, actually a better grade, it was in the C category, um, maybe uh, comes down here because what we've highlighted is the vulnerability in our uh, energy grid system. We also know we have a change in philosophy 
and policy going on from the change in the election. So the Trump administration was very pro keeping our energy dependence, using more still carbon-based energy. The Biden administration is um, not. Let's focus on uh, that stormwater problem versus the energy and, and use other forms. So the whole energy thing also intersects with a lot of the political debate that's going on between what energy do we use? How do we do it? How does use of energy, whether it's carbon or non-carbon, affect things like stormwater and whether you, you know, where your position is on climate change? Um, and then the other one was levees. So an interesting statistic that jumped on out on me is we have over 30,000 miles of levees. So wow. we tend to just think of New Orleans, right, and the big levee breach that happened with Hurricane Katrina. No, follow our inland waterways all the way up into St. Louis and all the flooding we hear about every year when we have the spring snow melt um, that goes all the way from uh, the upper Midwest and Minneapolis and uh, the upper Midwest region. And then how that melts and flows downstream. And so um, these inland uh, levees also affect things, again, like flooding and property casualty insurance. So really in every category, there's something pretty relevant. The last one I'll point out is transit. Transit got a D minus grade. And why is that important? Well, we're seeing with COVID and remote work, we've seen a lot of workforce and companies and population migrate from the dense urban cities that have relied on public transit, like a New York, a San Francisco, a Washington, D.C., a Boston. And many of those transit systems are 50 or more years old. Um, they're at the end of their useful lives. They need a lot of capital spend. <clears throat> well, if the population's leaving those jurisdictions and taking their revenue and their taxes with them, um, could we potentially be creating a bigger fiscal burden and challenge for places like New York or San Francisco or Boston or Chicago that are heavily dependent on transit systems? So, uh, you know, it ties directly into the office outlook. And if companies think that the transit systems aren't going to be maintained and they're falling apart and there's not going to be the capital to fix them, um, maybe that has an acceleration of workforce and population migration away from those dense cities. So lots to unpack in this thing. It sounds it. And of course, you pretty much answered my last question uh, for you, which was because I, I loved how you were able to share some implications in some of the other sectors, you know, outside of last mile and industrial, you know, you had spoke a little bit uh, to the hotel and leisure sector and office. Are there any other property sectors or other considerations that industry professionals should be kind of gleaning from this report? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. I think one is housing. So again, think of how where logistics infrastructure goes, where it's maintained, how that attracts workforce and companies that occupy office and how logistics is able to function from retail to home. Well, guess what that also impacts? Where we live. And so I think this report has huge implications, whether you're a public home builder or a regional or local. Um, how do we address this housing affordability problem? And so, again, do we just run from the locations that need more infrastructure investment um, or how does it affect where we where we live? Because if we don't think they're going to maintain levees, we're probably not going to live near a levee. If we don't think that they're going to maintain or sustain the airports, then maybe we look and, and, and locate maybe where uh, drivability is better. The roads are good. The bridges are good. So I think housing is the other one that we need to take a close look at. Um, I think it's going to disrupt 
the location of where we put housing, um, not only just locally and near things like how stormwater's handled and levees, but I think more macro in terms of what cities do we pick to live in that maybe have less um, risk from you know storm or weather issues. Um, so housing, we used to say that commercial real estate followed the rooftops, um, but I think after COVID, we're going to find the the rooftops um, is uh, is going to follow where the where the work goes, how and where we do work, and where the logistics infrastructure is in good shape or being maintained. This is I mean so much interesting information, and uh, you know certainly this is a, a tough subject, and it's not something we're going to be able to solve in a thirty minute podcast. It's a lot to digest, but. Uh, maybe that's why they only do it every four years. It really is a comprehensive look. And and again, this is not a political report. Uh, it's done by the nation's 150,000 civil engineers. They really roll up their sleeves and, and look at many, many issues and how they intersect. And um, I think the big takeaway is um, this has a huge impact on commercial real estate, really, whether it's housing or office or retail or logistics and industrial. It really does touch um, each of our property types. Absolutely. And that full infrastructure report card is available on ASCE's website right now. And of course, for more information on the last mile logistics course that's offered by CCIM Institute on demand that KC helped develop, you can just head over to CCIM.com. Thank you so much for joining me for another commercial investment real estate podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of commercial investment real estate podcast. Head to SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Join us next month for a brand new episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast, featuring another leading figure from the world of commercial real estate.